Oh, good morning, saints. Good morning, sinners. Good morning, Flame fans, Canucks fans, and Oiler fans. <laughs> I've been waiting for that for such a long time. Oh, it's good. Uh, unless you've been living in a cave, you're well aware of the tragedy that has taken place in Saskatchewan. And uh, it would be good for us to uh, keep them in our prayers. Um, there are chaplains that are currently working with the different teams, and uh, uh, something's good has got to come out of this. That's all I can say. So uh, we're, a, we're a hockey nation, and uh, something tragic has taken place, and we just need to remember those who have influence and that the Holy Spirit just moves in their hearts and their lives and can minister to uh, those in need in a very powerful way. So with that in mind, let us go to prayer and let's get busy this morning. Father, we thank you for your word and your eternal truths that guide us day by day. We thank you most of all for the living word, Jesus Christ, and the sureness of his presence. And we uh, are mindful of what has taken place in Saskatchewan. We pray for uh, all those that are affected. Uh, right from uh, the individuals, right through their families, right to first responders, billets, and everybody else. And God, just uh, may your presence, may your spirit uh, just infiltrate believers to make an impact towards you in this situation. This morning, teach us how to turn to you so that our thoughts may be uh, your thoughts and our ways actually turn into your ways. And let the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, and may everything thought, everything spoken, and everything felt be blessed by you. Amen. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 15, um, starting with verse 1. We're going to be changing things up over the next little while. We're going to be jumping in and out of Matthew. And uh, during that process, I'm going to be doing and starting up a series again of God in the Movies. And uh, now, if you haven't been to a God in the movies, all I can say is that you need to start bringing a friend. And the reason being is that movies are more than just powerful entertainment. I think uh, movies, TV as well for that matter, um, uh, actually shape our beliefs. They're the new prophets of what's going on in our society. These are the people we let into our homes. We actually let them into our heads if you want to go that far. And uh, can, depending on where you're at, is actually part of your family. Um, you know, they can become people, even though they're fictional, they can influence our thoughts and our desires and our dreams. And I'm always of the mind that almost every great movie points us towards a human condition. There are some bad movies out there, granted, but uh, we resonate with certain movies because they show us what it's like to be human. And what we have to remember is that the gospel is God's answer to that human condition. And anytime a movie actually portrays the human condition, it actually points us to the gospel. So, I'm going to do everything. I may do Zootopia. I actually even may do Frozen. Um, let it snow. Let it snow. <laughs> uh, but there's a whole bunch. If there are movies of, that are on your mind that if you've been watching, you would go, hey, that'd be a great God in the movie. Send it to me. And uh, just send me an email or send us a text here at the office and we'll go from there. If you see that I'm in discomfort, I am. I took a puck twice in the same spot in my ankle, so it's my fault. So have no sympathy for me. I just, I got three more games to play before the season's over. That's all I care about. So here we go. It's all about hockey. Anyway, Matthew chapter 15. Some of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they came to Jesus from Jerusalem. And they asked him, and I love this question, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? <laughs> Parents, they don't wash their hands before they eat. It's great. It's absolutely great. I want to focus on the Pharisees for a second. About 200 years before Jesus comes to earth, Israel's under the control of the Greeks. And this is before Rome came to power. And so the Greek thought is dominant. It's predominant. Many of the Jews, they, they naturally just start to observe the Greek way. And um, that's just what you do when you're being conquered, right? They stop circumcising their sons. Why? So that their, their kids could actually participate in the Greek games. Uh, some Jews start 
worshiping Greek gods. And so basically what is taking place is that they're being, uh, being Hellenized. And anytime you have something like that coming into a, a culture, you also have a pocket of resistance. And that pocket of resistance will stand up and, and tries to turn the tides. And that's what's happening here in Israel. And so there's a, uh, um, uh, a, a group of pious Jews who stood up against this, this Hellenization of the people. And they even took up arms to fight a revolution to save Israel and to save Judaism. And it was called the Maccabean Revolt. And the Jews actually won the revolution, but they really didn't have a plan after that. So it began to fracture really quickly. And what happened is that these groups that began to fracture actually turned it, they were religious groups. And each one had their own view on how things should be. So there were three main groups. You had the Sadducees, you had the Essenes, and you had the Pharisees. And um, the, the Sadducees were the theological liberals, if I can put it in uh, our state today. They denied the existence of angels and demons. They denied the resurrection of the dead. The Essenes, on the other hand, were kind of like the crazy charismatics. Can I, can I put it that way? Uh, they saw angels and demons behind everything. Um, and when the Pharisees, uh, they, the Pharisees denied the authority of Scripture, but the Essenes were busy adding extra biblical books to Scripture. Uh, they even claimed that they had books that uh, were written by Moses that nobody knew about. And then you also had the Pharisees. And these were the fundamentalists of the day. Uh, these uh, guys were involved in the politics. They even tried to influence things through politics. Now, they didn't have any political power because Rome came in and, and took over, uh, but uh, they still tried to manipulate the politics and the people uh, to influence their politicians. So they, this is how they worked things out. And so they were usually, usually excellent scholars. They ended up being in charge of the synagogues. And of course, the synagogues were not just places of religious worship and practice. They were the schools of ancient Israel. And so if you can teach the kids, right, you can influence the kids. And that's, that's no different than even our philosophy here at Seoul. You know, we try to influence the parents through the children. We want your kids to be hungry for, for scripture so that it's going to pass on to you. And hopefully your kids are going to influence you in this way. And so this is the thought that was going on in ancient Israel. And uh, you influence the kids, you can influence the parents. And uh, eventually you influence society. And so basically the, the Pharisees had some power and some authority, even when Rome is ruling Israel. And then Jesus comes along some 200 years you know, after, and they become nervous because they... And Mike's cutting in and out. Are we okay? Uh, people have become starting to listen to Jesus and instead of them, and they're becoming nervous. And all they could see is that, you know, we've worked so hard to get this far, and maybe now it's starting to slip away. And so now this group of men coming from Jerusalem, and they have an accusation against Jesus. And uh, we have to assume that these are probably one of the best trained scholars coming for this visit. That they are not just showing up, but they're on a mission. And they confront Jesus in front of the people. And uh, for whatever reason for their presence, they're there for direct confrontation. It's a personal attack. And Jesus has to endure this. And it, and it appears to be about washing hands, but that's just on the surface. The problem was is that the law doesn't address every detail in the life of a person might face in the Old Testament. And so the Pharisees who, you know, they looked at the scripture and they said, no, we need to be more clear. And so this is why I said earlier that they, you know, they viewed differently the scripture than from the Essenes. They, they said, no, we, we, we need to read between the lines. We need to help people fill in the blanks. And so in their desire to be obedient and probably more in their desire as well to maintain power and control, they started adding to the scriptures. And as soon as those things pass from one generation to the next, it actually becomes tradition. And now, there's nothing inherently wrong with tradition. Hear me that loud and clear. As long as you realize that that's all it is. And you don't elevate it 
beyond where it should go. But unfortunately, what has happened in this text is that's what the Pharisees did. And one of the most important things to the Pharisees is what they would call the purity rites. Now, most of that comes from reading the book of Leviticus and Numbers. And those are a whole lot of fun that you should always do in your daily devotional reading. But, you know, things like having to deal with the act of circumcision or not intermarrying or the types of food the person ate. You know, it was more than just not eating pork. There was more to it. It went further than that. And so they had this notion that these unclean things that are laid out in Leviticus and Numbers would actually defile them spiritually. And so they took the purity rites to the extreme and they added to the law to the extreme. And so things like washing wasn't just something that was hygienic. It was actually far more deeper and far more complicated an issue than that. So you're probably sitting here going, well, why, why should we even care about the Pharisees? Well, for one reason, I think they're important to the context of the entire New Testament that we need to be aware of. And for another reason, they actually help us understand ourselves. We're very quick to distance ourselves from the Pharisees, but we all have a little bit of Pharisee in us, right? And that's why the New Testament, I think, devotes so much time to the Pharisees. And the reality is that we could all have some of the same problems that they did. And so the purpose of the Bible in telling us about them is to help us identify it in ourselves and then kill it. Get rid of it. See, Jesus was patient with everyone except the Pharisees. You know, when sinners would approach him, he would often show them kindness. He would forgive them. He would eat and drink with them. But, the, you know, the Pharisees were a different story. It was like, the pastor's here, hide your beer. That's, you know, what was going on. They called them, he called them a brood of vipers. He called them evil or hypocrites or sons of their father, the devil. He called them whitewashed tombs. And here in our text, looks, look at what he says. Jesus replied, now remember, their previous verse is all about washing hands. He goes, why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. Okay, that's the law. That's what it says in the Old Testament. But you say, if anybody declares what might have been used to help their father or mother is devoted to God. I'll explain that in a second. They are not to honor their father or mother with it. Thus, you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. And so the reply of Jesus is more than just a counterattack. It's actually more uh, more a counterattack than actually a reply to their question. He accuses them of breaking the commands of God in order to keep their traditions. And, and so what he does in the conversation, right away he just puts it right back on them, that they were sinners. You guys are the sinners, not me and my disciples. You guys had broken God's command, and you guys have broken some of the teachings of the elders. And to press the point, he reminds them of a tradition of uh, going around the law of God. And this is what he brings up, and we need to fill in the blank to understand it. Um, the Pharisees were able to pronounce a vow on their things, all right, with a word called korban, and it means gift, so to speak. It's based on a word in Leviticus of bringing something near to God. So the word korban. So if a man, now here's the issue that Jesus is talking about that took place. If a man did not want to support his aging parents, okay, you, you tracking with me in today's day and age? He would announce korban. That means that the money was frozen. Okay? So remember, they don't have banks, but they have the money was frozen and would not be used in taking care of the parents. Thus, they could use their traditions to get out of taking care of their father and mother. So if you had a problem with mom or dad, it was your responsibility to look after them. But if you pronounce this vow of korban, then the, the assets froze and you weren't responsible for looking after your parents. And it was okay with the Pharisees in the eyes of God. Like, that's, that's sick. That's twisted. And so what they did is they used their traditions to getting, getting out of here, and then they would find a way of nullifying the vow 
so that when mom and dad are gone, they end up keeping the money. And the money's not spent on taking care of their parents. And so Jesus knows this practice is going on, so he calls them out. And that's why he says that they're hypocritical. That's why he begins to quote Isaiah 29. And in doing so, he's saying that that his generation is the same as Isaiah's generation. Because Isaiah and Matthew, the context is that people... uh, being spoken to are the Jews from Jerusalem who had religion that was characterized by externals. And the externals were more important than the truth. And so these guys, they said all the right things. They gave all the right impressions that they were, you know, holy and pious. But their hearts and their wills were not obedient at all. They, they had this religious form, but they were, that reality didn't go with it. And so their teaching is in vain because there was nothing of God's authority behind them. They, the point's very clear. Jesus is saying to his audience what Isaiah was saying to his is that their worship is in vain because their hearts are far from God. And then Jesus not only calls out the Pharisees, he turns to the people and he says... Listen and understand, what goes into somebody's mouth does not defile them, but what comes out of their mouth is what defiles them. So of course, he he begins to explain to the crowd as to what makes a person clean or unclean. And the Old Testament had a lot to say about what made a person clean and unclean. And everything was classified in the Old Testament as either clean or unclean. And what was unclean was not allowed near the temple in any way, shape, or form. So anything or anybody with any type of defilements or diseases or sins or contaminations or discharges and the like, that made a person unclean. And you can spend your time reading through all that stuff. It was crazy. And so the Pharisees were rigid in observing the laws of cleanliness as well as the Sabbath observance, obey the Sabbath, don't do anything, as well as tithes and making sure you give just the right amount. And in the process, they were so concerned with the outward observance of everything that they failed um, uh, to realize that the real defilement, the real issue is not this outward stuff. It's what's going on in here. The diseases, the discharges, the defilements that have made a person unclean were things in life that were was really a result of who we are, of sin and death in our culture. To observe these outward rituals and miss the connection with sin was really a waste of time. And so here Jesus would address the real source of the uncleanness, which got to the heart of the matter, which is really interesting. They're holding to externals, and they, they, they miss the real spirit of the law and the reason for the washing. And then, I love this, like, I... I, I Laugh out loud, I LOL when I read this. The disciples came to him. Do you know that the Pharisees are offended when they heard this? Like, really? <laughs> Seriously? No, I had no, you know. And then he looks at them. He goes, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be pulled up by its roots. Leave them their blind guides. If the blind lead the blind, both are going to fall into a pit. And so these people, obviously, the, the, the people at large held the scholars in high regard. And so the disciples are worried that Jesus is actually too hard on them. And they, they wanted to be exactly clear, you know, Jesus, do you know that what you said actually offended them? And Jesus wanted everybody else to be absolutely clear about the unreliability of the Pharisees' teachings. And so the basic issue was their misunderstanding of the law, and they dwelt on the externals as a source of uncleanness and didn't realize that the source of the defilements was sin in the world. And so this uncleanness actually originates in our hearts. And so in short, the human heart produces sin, and sin brought the curse, and the curse brought disease and defilement and death. And so God, when he chose the children of Israel, he legislated rituals to deal with the defilements and the death as a way of reminding Israel of the fact that they're defiled by sin and that they need to be going back to him all the time. Why? Not for the external, but for the internal. And Jesus often healed the sick people as a way of showing that he could deal with such causes such as sickness and sin, as well as the results of that. He was the Son of God. And to answer the disciples, Jesus uses these images. He, that, that first is about any plant that the Father has not planted would be rooted up. That comes from actually the Old Testament uh, that, that pictures the true Israel, the, the covenant believers as God's planting. And we see that in Isaiah 5, 1 to 7. 
Jesus is not saying that false teaching will be rooted out, but false teachers. In other words, the Pharisees are not part of God's planting. And there's this theme that gets clearer and clearer throughout the book, and we'll see that as we walk through Matthew. But the second image is that the teachers of Israel saw themselves as guides for the blind. And Jesus is looking at, you guys may think you're guides for the blind, but you're blind yourself. And if the blind leads the blind, both are going to obviously fall in the pit together. And he calls the leaders blind because they fail to understand the scriptures that they're teaching. They're so focused and they major on the externals that they forget about the reality. And since they're so weak in their understanding, they fail to perceive who Jesus was. And they fail to follow him as well. And ultimately, that's the ultimate spiritual blindness. And then we have to remember that when we see this concept of blindness being portrayed throughout all the New Testament. And so as leaders, they're going to lead people away from Christ because they don't rightly discern the scriptures. And so Jesus is just calling them out. And then the disciples show up. Peter said, explain the parable to us. (laughs) And Jesus, are you? Now, my language would say, are you so stupid? Like, you know, Jesus had one of those like emoji moments where his eyes were just, are you, are you with me? Are you so, like what don't, and what he's saying is in our vernacular, actually what he's saying is, what, do you, what don't you understand about this? And that's what he's portraying to Peter. What, and the disciples, what don't you understand about this? Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and out of the body? Oh, Jesus is getting very descriptive. But the things that come out of a person's mouth come, and I love this, from the heart. And these defile them. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person, but eating with unwashed hands does not defile him. And all the kids under five said amen. So Jesus goes into some detail and defines what, it, what defiles a person. You know, eventually stuff goes into her mouth and is cast out, right? Into the latrine, eventually, one way or another. And finally, Jesus ends his teaching that, you know, again, it doesn't matter if we wash our hands, but what comes from the heart matters. What, the, what is the products of our heart, you know? And then he nails these things, murder, anger, immorality. He starts talking Ten Commandments, interesting enough. And it's what a person does that produces defilement. The external laws of, of cleanliness or uncleanliness, if properly understood, reflect sin in the world. And it's helpful if you're a devout Israelite to avoid the impurities as a way of living a, excuse me, living a life of purity, to follow God. I get that. I get that picture. But when the tradition comes above what's actually going on in our heart, there's the danger. And Jesus is teaching that true religion must deal with the true nature of men and women. What's going on inside of you right now? That's what Jesus is talking about. He didn't care if you washed your hands or if you used Perel after shaking somebody's hand when you walked in here today. He wants to know what's going on inside of your heart. And the message he wanted to get across to the teachers is, you know, if you guys would have known this, you would be more concerned about the inner purity than you are about washing your hands. Look, at even in the culture, we have the three-second or the five-second rule, depending on what hit the floor and how long you are, or how hungry you are, right? Jesus is more concerned that people understand and develop deep righteousness, that they've been transformed. Ah, Transformers, maybe I can use that movie, right? So that they would produce righteousness and not uncleanliness. Washing hands. You know, it's a significant step in the right direction. Like, you know, if you ever go on a cruise or anything, you wash your hands. You, you do it. Even, even here, you know, I drink Perel after I shake your hands. That's basically how it is. But you, you want to you stay healthy. There's nothing wrong with that. My, my, my daughter-in-law, when, when our granddaughter was first born, man, we couldn't touch her unless we all washed our hands and Perel'd our hands. And then I think we actually had to soak them in gasoline and burn any actually residue off. But that's just our culture now, right? And Jesus is going, hey, 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 hey. The only way that people could be transformed in their hearts is to turn to Jesus as their Lord and Savior and to find forgiveness. But the the Jewish leaders would have none of that. And and so the one thing comes for clear, uh, one clear lesson then for this passage would, would concern external rituals. 
If people participate in church services, let me just start there. You know, we follow all the rituals perfectly. Oh, stand up, sit down, you know, close your eyes. Oh, it's prayer time. Let's sing. All right, all right. Um, That may represent a heart of faith, but it also may not. You know, unbelievers, I can go so far as to say that unbelievers can have the, 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 the appearance of being devout, but if, if there's not faith, then their ritual is no help. And so ritual without reality of faith is actually worthless. And that's quick fix spirituality. It's more important for people to get our hearts right with God than in order to get the ritual down. Getting right with our heart right with God begins with faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, finding forgiveness and cleansing from God through him and following him faithfully in his teachings about the spiritual life than it is getting the ritual down. Now, I uh, had the opportunity once to take some time. I shared this story before where I, I took a... a time a silent retreat down at St. Benedict's and I wanted to go to the prayers and in the chapel and of course the sisters are there and if you don't know what St. it's a Catholic monastery <gasps> you went to a Catholic monastery yeah and I didn't get struck by lightning go figure that one out so uh, you listen to the mass and you hear the liturgy and it's actually all gospel go figure that but as a um, Protestant totally clueless to the rituals of standing, sitting, kneeling, standing, sitting, and feeling like I was a piece of popcorn and not knowing what to read with the turn. I looked, I turned around to a little sister and I said, can you help me? And of course she tutored me through the whole experience. But the ritual gave meaning to the text. And for me, it, it was a very deep experience. I have a friend who teaches down in the, uh, Mecca uh, for the Assemblies of God um, in Springfield. And uh, yeah, you know him, I've had him here, Marty Middlestat. And, and Marty's very clear in his own personal spiritual journey that some of his most uh, spiritual times, his most devout times were being in the Catholic Church and hearing the gospel presented and going through the dif- different symbolism. And sometimes when we understand the scriptures, we see the importance of the s- scriptures and the traditions just enhance it. In our text, the traditions took over. But that even happens not just in the Catholic Church, but here as well. And so before we come too hard down on the Pharisees for focusing on the the outer show, we need to remind ourselves that week in and week out, we spend far more time getting the outer body ready for a church than we do our heart, do we not? What's your ritual Sunday morning? Well, I yell at the kids after I have my first cup of coffee. That's my ritual. And then we fight on the way there. Who's going to dress them? What's your ritual? How do you prepare your heart for Sunday morning? Man, I hope Machowski doesn't go on behind past the top of the hour. We didn't get our buffet line in time. Nothing like gluttony on a Sunday morning after church. Like, what's your ritual and so? How do we prepare our hearts when we come together? Do we even take the time to prepare our hearts? You know, what is it? Are we spending time in prayer? Are we saying, God, open my eyes. What's your ritual? You know, the, the Pharisees are just like us, you know, and we're just like them because many times we need quick fix spirituality and, and and, I, you know, I think this bunch, these Pharisees, like us, they, they thought they could make themselves right with God with all the things they were doing. They missed the point entirely that only God could make them right. Only God could justify them to themselves. And the Pharisees are trying to measure up their idea of what godliness is and not to God's idea. They actually believed that they were actually doing it. By all their outward religion, they were justifying themselves before God. And I think that falls into what happens here when we gather as a church community across the the nation, across the world sometimes. We expect God to conform to our standards. Look at God. I showed up. I even came five minutes late. Oh, sorry. Did I step on toes? I I didn't mean. I'm sorry. I didn't know we started at 9.09 in case, you know, we weren't clear. You don't like my humor, do you? Okay. Oh, sorry, sarcasm. It's sarcasm. Like, 
where's our heart at? How are we preparing our heart? And you know, we expect God to show up. And if the band doesn't perform the way we want it to, if the speaker doesn't perform the way we want to, well then, well, I just wasted two hours of my time coming here. And Where's our heart prepared to meet with God? And you know what? Then we're no different. We're no different than what we read in the New Testament when we come across the Pharisees. Another lesson that, that there's a real danger to replace true meaning, the true meaning of Scripture and the letter and, and the spirit of it with traditions. And again, traditions can be incredibly helpful. I don't have an issue with that. but Because they have a way of crowding out the... Uh, especially in churches, sometimes our traditions have a way of crowding out basic Christian standards. And you don't have to look very far to see the attitude of these teachers appearing in our churches today. You know, so many traditions have grown up over the centuries that many, uh, and if it depends what church, maybe you came out of the church where the tradition was actually more holy than the scripture. Are you with me? Do you know what I'm tracking at? You know, we're more concerned with, that people might violate our man-made rules, you know, in the way that we run the church or in the governance of the church. The constitution is the most important thing. The vote of the people, you know, or the way we do baptism, the way we do communion, the set of rules that our particular group follows, the you know, things that we do, the things that we don't do, the things that we chew, the things that we don't chew. Are you with me on this? We're more concerned about which way to stand at the communion table than we are about actually meeting the needs of the people in the community. And if we're not careful, those traditions quickly achieve the level of God's word. Pull up your pants, take off your hat, wear your Sunday best. Oh, you're dressed like that. You can't wear those holes in your jeans, dear. She asked me this morning, oh, can I wear these jeans? They have holes in them. I go, no, no, wear them, wear because I'm going to make a sermon illustration out of you. <laughs> that was my whole intent, sweet. I love you. This is confession, and it's very healthy for your marriage. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm dead. So when it comes along to who keeps tradition in its proper place, you know. Uh, that's interesting. What are the things that offend us? Are we offended when somebody leaves their hat on? Are we offended when they, we see their underwear and they don't pull out their belt buckles in church? Are we offended in the way that they have holes in their jeans? Are we offended in the music that is played? Are we offended in the way that communion is done? Are we offended that, oh, they're allowing their kids to participate in communion? Are we offended that we are not sprinkling or that we are sprinkling and that we're not dedicating or baptizing? Are we, are, what's more important? And so there are a couple major errors that the Pharisees did. And the first one is they, they made their tradition necessary for godliness. You know, the text says, you honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. In other words, they were saying the right things, but they were no closer to being justified than before. And Jesus had a problem, again, with these Pharisees elevating their tradition to equal God's commands. And not only did they elevate their tradition, they began to look down on other people who didn't keep, isn't this interesting, the same traditions and customs. And you see to the Pharisee, if you didn't obey their traditions, then you were considered less godly. How many times have you and I looked at other Christians and they have behaved or they, they go to a different church and we look at them as less godly? Can you say amen or ouch? Because that's the reality of where we find ourselves. You know, if you don't obey, then, you know, Jesus gets a little bit uptight and he says, here are the two greatest commandments. You're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. He puts it all together for us. God wants us to love him and to love and serve others. And, you know, realistically, he doesn't really care about our traditions. The second error that the Pharisees had is that their godliness was all about these outward religious practices. That was the priority for them. And they totally missed it. They believed if God valued what they valued, you know, it would be obvious. God, you know, they felt that God, you know, felt what they felt was important. In other words, God is, you know, we represent God. We are God. It's little uh, representatives running around the earth here. So do our traditions and you're going to please God. And basically they, you know, they said, I'm I'm pretty pretty holy guy, you know. I do all the right things. I go above and beyond God's what God's law even says to do. There's no way that God will disapprove of, of the things that uh, uh, I do. He's going to back me up 100%. 
And they alienated people in that whole process. God wants his people, he wants you and I to declare his glory. And one of the best ways that we can do that is showing the love of Christ to a lost world. That's what he wants. And secondly, God wants us to to be in an intimate relationship with him. And we do that how? Well, by loving him. And not by doing our our rituals or our external religious practices. We got to love God. We got to love the neighbor. And that's all our law. And it's not that our religious practices or our traditions are wrong, because we do. We have them even here at Seoul. It's just that our religious practices and traditions should flow from loving God and loving our neighbors. So what's the takeaway this morning? Many times I get the feeling that we, we find, when we find ourselves in a jam, we call out, you know, God, I just need a little bit of help, right? Jesus, fix my problem. But with that, without actually saying it, what we're saying is, Jesus, fix my problem, but leave the rest of my life alone. And often when people call on God, they're not looking to make a big change. They, when we call on God, we just need God to fix a little problem, right? We're not looking to maybe put God first in everything. We just want to keep him close to us. You know, maybe, hey, God, just keep me from getting laid off. Or, you know, I'm not really looking to take out my cross and follow you. We just want you, you know, maybe my 23-year-old is back on the drug lifestyles, and can you just get him out of there? You know, we're not looking to make you Lord of our lives, God, but I just want you to heal the cancer. And what we're saying is, God, just fix my problem, you know, please, and leave the rest of my life alone. And so to fix my problem, okay, I'll come and I'll give or I'll attend church or I'll do whatever I need to do for you to fix my problem. And, and I'll say this, it's not that we're not sincere in our prayers, because I believe we're com- tremendously sincere. It's not to say that we're not contrite and not even humble. I would say that we are in our prayers, And that we even know that we're in such a predicament, we know we need God's help. And that's the reason why we're asking. And the fact is, maybe we don't even have anywhere else to turn. But within that sincerity and humility, there's also this clear understanding that maybe we're not interested in a larger change of lifestyle or a shift in who is usually calling the shots. Are you with me? Are you tracking with what I'm saying this morning? Watch this video. Dear God, I wanted to bring to your attention what I believe to be a mistake in your plan for my life. You see, I'm a Christian, and yet I still have challenges and trials in my life. I'm sure this is just a mix-up, because if being a Christian can keep you out of hell for eternity, then certainly it can keep you from flat tires, rainy days, and stubbed toes for the relatively short time you're here on earth. I knew life as a Christian wouldn't be perfect, but I just thought it would get a little boring sometimes. I didn't know there would be actual hardships and troubles involved. All I'm saying is, I pay my tithes, I say my prayers, so hold up your end of the bargain and take away all my future trials. Sincerely, Troubled in Tennessee. Pay my tithes, I say my prayers, and I hold up to your end of the bargain. Isn't that loaded? We want help without giving up control. And I'm saying that if we go to him for a quick fix for one part of our lives while keeping the doors closed to the other part of our our lives, that's not a plan that's going to work very well. From God's willingness to, to do that or from the success of the arrangement if he doesn't help us. You know, as I I think we'd all agree, this, you know, wanting help without giving up control is a very common way that people approach God. It's, It's the way we approach God. And this points to those times when we want God to fix one part of our lives, but leave the rest alone. God, fix my marriage, but leave my porn habit alone. Fix my kids, but leave my anger problem alone. Fix my bitterness, but leave my envy alone. And asking God to fix one part of my life while not touching the rest of it is just like the Pharisees saying, just wash properly and you're going to have no problem. No, you missed the point. 
But asking God to fix one part of my life while not touching the rest is, is, is actually, and it's another parable, but it's like trying to sew a new piece of a new cloth onto an old garment. It's not going to work. And in the end, you're going to get a bigger tear. And the analogy there has to do with the times when we want God to do something within us while, he, while leaving what's outside us alone. Another way we would say it is, I want him just to fix my soul, but leave my body alone. Or I, I want him to fix my spirit, but God, leave my lifestyle alone. And the big point as it relates to what we're talking about today is that God is not interested in just having a part of us. God doesn't care about our religious gymnastics. He's not interested in serving as our Mr. Fix-It. God is not interested in belief that doesn't include obedience. The call of Christ is difficult. It's a difficult call because it's a call for us to give him everything. That, and when we go through the scriptures, he says to carry your cross, to lose your life, to count the cost. And it's not adding to what we already have or having God on the inside, but not where anybody will see him. It actually changes everything. So are we looking for God to fix our problems and just sort of then leave us to, to go on with our own life? Is that what we want? Is that how we view God in today's Christianity? Come and fix my problems, but stay out of my life, right? Am I wanting God's help, you know, but without losing control, you know? And well, listen, it just doesn't work like that. You know, this also answers how we avoid just running after whatever the next big thing is and we want sometimes to have the best of both worlds in our life I do you know I want the best of God I want the best of the world but sometimes it just doesn't work like that the love of the world is a hatred of God according to 1 John 2.15 you know some people complain you know why isn't faith working for me here's a possible reason because you're trying to have it on your own terms we want a quick fix spirituality. Well, I go to church. Yes, yeah, so. So is the devil. And when we expect God to come through, and yet he doesn't because I'm not actually his, it's a bit of an issue, right? You know, I'm waiting to to do what I've asked but I don't realize he's not going to do it because why? because maybe I'm not really sold out to him and what's really interesting is when I talk to people who find themselves in this predicament this usually they're in some sort of resentment and uh, and if not resentment there's a disillusion and so we have to ask ourselves does God want all of us course but have you given all of you are there areas in your life that you're holding tight on to and and really he can't really work if you're not prepared to let go you know the choice is really in front of you you know we use that phrase are you all in are you all in because if you're not all in you're basically ruined are you i am we're left trying to pull our own pieces together. We're left trying to be in control. We're left maybe with bitterness and resentment. And as much as we might want to go halfway to keep one foot in each world, you know, we, we hedge our bets maybe on some sort of compromise. The fact of the matter, as believers in the 21st century today, I'll just say it, we need to be all in. Trying to go halfway does not leave us with the best of both worlds. I'll honestly, I gotta be honest with you, trying to do halfway with our faith actually leaves us with a bigger mess on our hands. We need to face this head on, church. And if you're giving God less than your all, the end result is not gonna be good. Ultimately, there's no such thing as casual Christianity or Jesus light. It's not there. We need to embrace the change, 
right? We need to jump boldly into our faith. We need to be honest with ourselves and with God. And I think that is scary. And I think that it is challenging to embrace the unknown. If I have to become honest with this, what's going to happen? But we have to be willing, I think at this point in our spiritual walk and in our nation today, to trust that Jesus has good reasons for why he does and what he does in our lives. Because I think every one of us sitting here wants to experience a deeper change in one thing or another. And the fact is, following Jesus leads into directions that we may not anticipate at first. And he has good, solid reasons for why he points us in the directions that he does. But the fact remains that we have to be willing to say yes up front, not knowing where that may lead. And Jesus sees things connect more clearly than we do you know and in pastoral ministry you're, you're dealing with all different types of things in people's lives but even in our own lives we have our own stuff and so my mom's sick she has esophageal cancer um, and there's not a time in the day that when I'm talking to her visiting her she always says well, why has God given me this my father-in-law is stuck in a hospital bed dealing with his own stuff and there's not a day when we go and visit and he says, why is God doing this to me? And these are people who are in their 80s, late 80s and they're faithful and been faithful in their life and they're just questioning and what, what kind of answers you What kind of answers do I as a pastor give to people when they come and they sit down in their office and pour their heart out to you and you, the, the choices that you've made or are making are just a train wreck and you can see it from a mile away but you know, what are we doing? So we carry the weight of people in our community, carry the weight of people in our family. And why I said that, I don't even know. Maybe it's because Jesus sees things connected more clearly than we do. And yet it, it, it all goes back, especially when Matthew himself, the author of this book, his, he's called by Jesus and his response is found in Mark's book, ironically, chapter two. And he responds to Jesus's question of follow me. And are we willing to go in, all in like that? To trust him completely with our lives even when we don't have answers to, to the questions of what's going on around us and I'll say this my mom is still trusting God my father-in-law is still trusting God even in the hardships of their own personal situations even when they're asking why me and sometimes I look and maybe we need to look at people who are gone through hardships maybe never got their answers to the question why, but see where their trust is placed. And maybe we can learn from that and apply it to our lives. And it makes our problems just a little bit more easier to deal with. And it opens our eyes to saying, look, I'm prepared to take whatever comes my way from you, God. So what's your quick fix? Joel 2, 25 says, I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. You know, in some amazing way, God will somehow repay years that we have squandered, wasted, and, and broke. And so here's my prayer for you this morning. Join with me in prayer. Father, this morning that you would ask, we would, we would ask that you would begin to take back the years that maybe for some here that were lost as a kid, or as a teen, as a spouse, as a parent. And God, I just sort of hold you to what you said here in Joel, that you would give back to us those that which has been lost somehow. Because may we, as we sit here and we look at quick fix spirituality, may we believe that we can be restored by you. That you would give beauty for ashes, God, for 
today for some, that's really all we bring. Our, our lives feel like ashes in our hands and we come with, with mourning and despair and yet you say you will give joy. You say that you'll give us praise and gladness in our hearts and then you tell us that we're planted like strong oaks for your glory and yet we feel like weeds at times. You, you also say that if we want to keep our life, we need to lose it and so many of us don't really know how to even let loose of the rope and we're definitely at the end of our rope but we don't know how to let, let go and to trust you. So God, my prayer today for Soul Sanctuary is to give us courage to learn to trust you or to ask someone to pray with us to lead us out of the cave in which we find ourselves and to put our hand into your hand, Jesus. Oh, give us the courage to invite you into our lives. Give us the courage to give up that addiction and to put it into your hands because we can't fix it, but you can. <laughs> and as we go along each day just trying to run our lives our way, we forget to let go and to give you control. We wonder why things aren't going the way we want them to go. May we stop. Help us, Lord, to stop to give you control, to follow you and do what you desire for us. God, may we accept each day as a gift. Let us follow the plan you choose for us. Help us to be thankful for what you need us, or for what you give us, and not to worry about my needs, and I trust that you take care of all of my needs, but remind me that my role is to care for those around me and to focus on those who need my help. God, forgive us for the way we judge other people. We're quick to condemn others even when you've given us and rescued us from so much. And this morning, there are those who of us who are asking for healing of our brokenness. The wounds from the past that have led to this day. Heal us, I pray. Make us healers. Make us understand that it's about giving our hearts to you and not about doing any religious ritual. Pull them out of the pit of despair and out of the mud and mire and set their feet on solid ground today. God, I pray that you'd give us, as we leave this morning, a new song today, a hymn of praise to sing to our God. And when people look at your life, that they would be moved to put their trust in the Lord. So help us, Jesus, to be who and what you want us to be and give us the strength, give us the faith, and give us the hope. And most of all, give us guidance each day as we let go and give you control of our hearts. Stand with me. In ancient times, one who blessed extended his hands for his blessings. Those receiving blessings did likewise. Here it is for you. <laughs> oh, may God be in your head and in your understanding. May God be in your eyes and in your looking. May God be in your mouth and in your speaking and may God be in your heart and in your thinking and may God be in, come, in your coming and in your going because may God be with you all this week as you now go and live the church. Amen.